This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning, everyone. Hi, my name's Owen. If I've not met you before, it's nice to meet you. Um, uh, well, what, it's quite a Sunday, isn't it? Because it's uh, school holidays and everything now started. And so uh, I, I, I want to say I come today with a kind of like a sense of I want to share this with you. But I think it's, it's kind of like, you know, in the Christian calendar, there are, there are times of great celebration. And then there's also great times of lamentation, and 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 it's not we're not just a happy clappy kind of church that goes right through the year, kind of unfazed by the challenges of life. And yet at the same time, I feel like with Easter, like uh, Emma and Claire were just saying, there's just this this time of huge celebration this week. But there's also before that time of celebration, there's time of reality of what actually happened um, on what we celebrate now as Palm Sunday, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. But before I do that, I just want to just want to encourage you, um, and I want to invite you just to um, repeat the words that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you and right now I just want to invite you just to close your eyes for a moment if you if you will and if you're at home just close your eyes and uh, by the way if you're driving listening to this in th- later in the week and you're driving at the moment don't close your eyes okay all right but let's close our eyes and Holy Spirit we just we just pray that you would make us aware of yourself. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, don't you realize that Christ is in you? And so often some of us, uh, perhaps, we, we're tempted to think that Christ comes and goes from us. The Holy Spirit comes and goes from us. That um, the Holy Spirit's walked out the door or has walked in the door. And I just want to remind us that when you walked in the door, the Holy Spirit walked in with you. When you walk out the door, the Holy Spirit walks out with you. The the Holy Spirit is in you. Christ Jesus is in you. And as you you sit there now, just feel the breath moving in and out of your mouth and your nose. Just feel the air moving in and out rhythmically. The Hebrews believed and they had a word for this the Ruach of God. Isaiah talked about the, the bones being covered in flesh and God breathing on these dead people and them coming alive. God has breathed on you and you are alive because of that. And the divine presence of God is in you. You are made in God's image. That's a deeply profound Hebrew belief that we are made in God's image. You look like God. You are made in God's image. God has breathed his life into you and Christ is in you. And may the reality of Christ in us this morning, may it fill our hearts with joy and with hope and with contentment. And we know that all that life, it all flows from the resurrection. It goes back in time, it goes forwards in time, it goes sideways. 
in ways that only astrophysicists can understand. But that life is from God and we celebrate that life today. And may we feel that life. May we enjoy God's presence in us right now as we contemplate what actually happened on Palm Sunday and the events leading up to it. And may the weightiness of these events contrast with the life that is in your soul right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, I, 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 you know, when I was a kid, Palm Sunday... And I went to, a, when I was a, a small child, I went to the local Methodist church and we'd come home with those, um, well, we'd come home with one or two things, actually. I have the crosses made out of palm leaves, you know those? And uh, usually they get stuck in, they, we'd have five of them because there were five of us, you know, three kids and the parents and they'd get stuck all over the house or all over the car. My dad used to stick his above the kind of windshield. Uh, was it not windshield? The, um, the flap, the sunscreen, sunscreen on the windshield. And, um, uh, or... We'd come home with, if we were very small, and some of you parents might, your kids might come home with this today, with um, paper fronds that they've coloured in green um, of palms, and, um, and we'd be waving them. And we didn't know why we were waving them, but we'd be waving them anyway, <laughs> and it was fun, and that's what we did. And we celebrated Jesus coming in on a donkey into Jerusalem, and it was a lovely time, and we had a great time. Um, as a parent, um, I've, I've got three kids and now they're sort of all mid-late teens but when they were little um, I, really, I didn't really explain to them the, the actual reality of Palm Sunday um, and the events that led up to it because actually for me, I don't know about you but in the Gospels of Jesus these events actually form some of the most confusing and bizarre and difficult to read passages in all of the Gospels have you ever noticed that? in the few weeks that run up to Jesus' death? It's confusing. I mean, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just this week, have a read through some of them. We're actually going to look at some of them today. Just have a read through some of them because they're, they're actually, Jesus says some really challenging and difficult things that don't really make a lot of sense to our, our lives today, but did make sense in the context that he was living at that time. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And the question I'm going to invite you to consider at the end of this short talk is, where would you have been on Palm Sunday? Where would you have been on Palm Sunday? And I'm going to explain what your options are later on. Is that okay? So where would you have been on Palm Sunday? So um, let me explain why um, I wanted to leave my children in a blissful state of ignorance about the events running up to Jesus' death. And, and the reason is, is because, frankly, it would be like trying to explain to them what's happening currently. And particularly, I'm thinking of Putin's Russia at the moment where people um, who are critics of, of Putin are coming to bizarre and untimely deaths. If you didn't know that, just Google it. You'll find out in the press. There's loads of people that have just fallen off balconies, have died of a heart attack, have been poisoned, whatever. Critics of Putin who are just being killed left, right and centre. We don't really know what it's like to live in a totalitarian, authoritarian state like that. But nevertheless, at the moment, what's happening in Russia is probably a good metaphor for what was happening at the time of Jesus. Let me explain more to you. Uh, by the way, there are tyrants and dictators and totalitarian states around the world. I know that. I'm just picking on the Russian one because it's very much in the public eye at the moment. But um, about 50 years before Jesus was born, um, 
I'm ba- forgive me, I'm a little bit nerdy when it comes to history. All right, I love history, but I'll save you the detail. I know quite a lot about it, but I'll just give you the headlines. Is that all right? So um, uh, 50 years before Jesus was born, the semi-democratic Republic of Rome embarked on a period of military expansion, and it was brutal. And it lasted for around about 30, 40 years. And at that point, uh, when Julius Caesar died, his nephew Octavian seized power and declared himself Emperor Augustus, which means like all powerful one. And he imposed a period of what they called Roman peace, which is an incredible oxymoron because what it really means is a Roman peace imposed by violent, brutal repression, okay? And they had an advanced army um, and they had an expansionist policy. And so they literally, it was scorch, uh, what do they call it? Um, Scorching, I've got it written down, excuse me. Uh, Scorched earth strategy. So basically, uh, suppressing all dissent wherever they went and imposing their rule and reign. Okay, so it was, it was a, it was a, it, there was totalitarianism to it. it. Okay, it went from being a, a democratic republic to being a totalitarian state. And brutal violence was used to terrorise local pol- uh, populations into submission. And of course, although we think of the Roman cross being the central symbol of, of Christianity, the reality is the cross was the, was the principal means of terrorising local populations. So um, any, anybody that rebelled against the Roman armies as they came into town were basically nailed to crosses and hung up on crosses. And th- there, would be, there would be literally um, loads of these crosses on the roads leading into these towns where local rebels were nailed, they, were, they died on the cross, and then their bodies were left for wild animals to pick them off. It was brutal. It was, it was, it was utterly inhumane but it was their principal means of terrorizing local populations. Like, this is what we'll do to you if you rebel against us. And of course, as they, that was a very effective technique because local populations basically submitted. They rolled over because they knew what would happen if they stood up and tried to fight the Romans. Now, throughout history, human history that is, systems of domination by tyrants and dictators have generally shared four characteristics. First of all, they are typically ruled by a few, either a king, a president, um, an emperor, and they are supported by a small coterie of advisors, um, administrators, and bureaucrats. Um, and more than, more than 90% of the population don't have a say in how things are run. There's no democracy, it's just autocracy. And um, just like Putin has surrounded himself with lo- uh, a loyal mafia-like group, so the Romans recruited local mafia wherever they expanded. So, for instance, you've probably heard of Herod. He was a local um, leader in the area of Judea. He was recruited and effectively in the pay of the Romans. And then um, uh, after that, they imposed their own local leaders like Pontius Pilate. So these are names that you'll be familiar with. These are people who basically did the, did the bidding of the Roman Empire. Um, Secondly, uh, brutal tyrants and dictators are economically exploitative. Okay, so, um, you know, we've seen, we've seen the Russian oligarchy. And the reality is, is that in, in Jesus' time, Herod would take his big cut of the local taxes and, and, and literally just use it for his own benefit. Uh, and so you had this kind of massive inequality between the rich and the poor. Um, with the rich just enriching themselves and the poor people getting poorer. Thirdly, they're systematically violent. Tyrants use the threat of violence to terrorise local populations. And as we know from the stories of Jesus, that Herod 
commanded that all of the babies under the age, all of the male babies under the age of two in the Bethlehem area, the Bethlehem Judea area, would be murdered in his search for this baby Jesus. You all know that story probably from the, from the, the nativity stories. I mean, we, we, we just gloss over that a little bit, don't we? But, you know, that was just systematic murder on a scale that is difficult to imagine. This was the world in which Jesus was born and this was the world in which Jesus lived. And fourthly, these tyrants are often legitimised by religious figures. Um, it's really, I mean, I find it um, personally just uh, remarkable that the head of the Russian Orthodox Church legitimises the war in Ukraine, but he does. And in the same way, Herod appointed the Jewish high priests um, uh, who were loyal to him to, to legitimise his power. So, so you can see how religious, the religious leaders at the time that Jesus often argued with well, the reason he argued with them was because they were legitimising the Roman uh, t uh, system of rule in, in that country. And so this is the world that Jesus lived in. Um, and um, I think it's just really helpful to understand that when we read, particularly Mark. Like, read Mark 8 onwards and you'll get a gist of what I'm talking about. We're going to do that now. We're going to read Mark 8, 31 to 38. Okay, this is, this is in the run-up to uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Verses 31. Jesus then began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man, that was the term that uh, was used to reference Jesus, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But... When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Strong words here. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Satan is a, a word that is used to describe a, like someone who accuses. Okay, it means the accuser. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Okay. I like those, those are words you don't hear often preached on. Am I right? Like, that's a difficult passage to exposit, particularly if you don't understand the context in which it's made. Earlier, Jesus in Mark 8.15 is warning his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. I mean, some of you are going, yeah, I know that, yeah. Jesus warns his disciples about the, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. In other words, be aware of the influence of these two groups of people. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Pharisees were the strict law keepers. They were the ones that kind of, like, the, the apostle Paul was a Pharisee and he went around persecuting people for not keeping the law. So did the rest of the Pharisees. So they were difficult people to live with. And the Herodians, well, these were the, this was this group of people that I was just describing around Herod who were legitimizing his rule and reign and were kind of imposing his rule and reign in that area and terrorizing the local uh, population. And Jesus says, beware of these two groups of people. Beware of them, particularly the religious ones, because he said they're really masquerading. You'll be aware, no doubt, that um, John the Baptist, there's this story about John the Baptist who was murdered by Herod, okay, and his head's cut off. Um, he's already, already been in prison. 
and, and frankly, again, it's a story that we just kind of gloss over a little bit. Oh, yeah, John the Baptist was killed. Yeah, yeah, he was killed. And why was he killed? Well, because he was a critic of Herod. Okay, and Herod just got annoyed with him and decided he was going to murder him. So we know that John the Baptist was Jesus' mentor. We also know that he was a relative of Jesus, right? And he's preaching the same message. And so what happens? Jesus kind of knows that once John the Baptist has been killed, he's next on the hit list, okay? Because Herod didn't stand for people that criticized him. So as Jesus tries to explain to his disciples that he expects to be killed, it's because he's already seen his mentor, John the Baptist, be killed. But in this situation, we see that Peter's having none of it. He takes Jesus aside, and I think probably like you and I, if I said to you, look, I'm going to be killed for standing on this stage preaching, you'd probably say, ah, hang on a minute, uh, stop doing that. Like, we don't want to see you killed. So that's what's going on here. Peter's saying, no way. And he uses some pretty strong language to express his anger. See, Peter thought that Jesus was going to lead a revolution. Okay. I think he might have thought that it was going to be a violent revolution. We know that uh, prior to Jesus, in the probably 200 years prior to Jesus, there has been several attempts to lead a revolution, not just against, the, uh, against Roman rule, but also prior to that, a couple of hundred years before, against Greek rule. And the reality is, is that none of it ever really was successful, apart from the Maccabean revolution, which only didn't last very long. And so they are desperate for someone to overthrow the Romans and to overthrow people like Herod. And Peter thought that Jesus was this, he thought he was going to be the one that did it. He genuinely thought Jesus was going to lead a revolution and become the new king of Israel. So what we notice as well about Peter is that he's, he's, he's got a fiery temper, but he's also quite physically imposing. And we know that at one point in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's recorded that Peter actually grabbed his sword when, when men came to arrest Jesus, grabbed his sword and, and attacked one of those men who was coming to arrest Jesus and actually ended up cutting off his ear. He must have been a good shot. I mean, like, I don't know what he was going for, but he just caught his ear. And at the time, Jesus healed him. But nevertheless, you get an impression of the man Peter. And so it's not surprising that Peter's having an argument with Jesus saying, you're joking, you're joking, like you are not going to get killed. This, I'm not going to let that happen. And of course, this isn't a moment of high emotional tension for Jesus. Like, it's often hard to imagine Jesus being really emotionally involved because we just read the words on the page. But this would have been a moment of real high tension for Jesus, real high level of anxiety. And what we see is Jesus having effectively some hard words for those who will follow him. And I think what we're seeing here is Jesus giving some of his followers an off-ramp. He's saying, guys, from this moment on, it's going to get really serious and I'm going to be killed. And if you want to get off at this point, now is your moment to get off. Now is your moment to get off. And to be fair, he doesn't actually say it in terms of, guys, just get off. It's fine. Take the easy route. I'll go this. If I go alone into this by myself, that's absolutely fine. You guys have an easy laugh, take an off ramp. He doesn't actually say that, does he? He says, whoever wants to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. I mean, it's like, oh my, he, don't, he doesn't actually give them much of an option. He's saying this. He's kind of like issuing a rallying call. He's saying, guys, if we want to overthrow this tyrannical system of political and military and religious domination, then we need to risk losing our own lives. And if you are not willing to risk losing your own life, there's an off-ramp right now.
So not many weeks later, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover. Okay, the Passover is a really important Jewish festival. Okay, it's the one where they all come together, ideally in Jerusalem. And so everyone's heading towards Jerusalem, including Pontius Pilate, because he is the de facto leader. And um, <clears throat> Jerusalem's packed with people, and Jesus enters Jerusalem from the east, riding on a donkey with his followers chanting words that linked him to the ancient Israelite King David and proclaimed him as the King of Peace. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palms because they're waving them like, like flags. They're waving them in such a way as to welcome him into Jerusalem. But who are these people? Where well, they are the marginalized. They're the people that Jesus has gone to, his whole ministry. Like, they're the, they're the people with diseases that have been healed. They are the people who have eaten the bread and the fishes that Jesus has multiplied. They're the people who are poor, who are marginalized, who uh, are really rejected from mainstream society. These are the people who are welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem at the East Gate. Quite an impression, quite, a, quite an image. At the same time, not necessarily identical time, but at the same time, it's thought that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, with all of the pomp and all of the power of empire, would have been entering Jerusalem at the West Gate, led by a squadron of Roman soldiers with flags, with opulence. It would have been quite a scene. It would have been part of the celebrations. So you've got Jesus entering in with people just grabbing leaves, basically, and waving them. All the people who are kind of excluded from society, all of the people who are, don't fit within the aristocratic structures of what would have been Roman Judeo uh, society. And then on the other gate, you've got this magnificent procession with Pontius Pilate and all the symbols of the Roman Empire, flags and people cheering, people wanting to be seen. These were the people who would have been there simply because they had to be there. It's like, if I'm not there, that's where it's all happening. I want to be associated with this. I've got to be there. These are the people who were in society, who were accepted, who had the privileges of being considered to be creditable citizens of society. So you've got this incredible contrast. Now, not long after Jesus has arrived, he causes mayhem in the temple. He literally makes a whip and starts running around, turning over the tables of the money changers in the outer courts and screaming at them. I mean, they think he's mad. And see, what happens is these market traders set up their stalls in the temple courts and, um, and, and Jesus walks in and goes, this is my father's house. It's a house of prayer. It is, should not be a den of robbers. He sees it for what it is. So he causes absolute mayhem. And in Mark eleven eighteen, it says, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. We must remember that these religious leaders were in bed with the Roman governor. They legitimized the Roman governor's rule and reign. Repeatedly during that week, Jesus goes head to head with this religious political regime. And you can read it. And this is what I want to encourage you to do. Read Mark 11 through 15 
and you're going to find it hard to read because it's the bit of the Bible, you uh, the New Testament, you don't like reading because it doesn't make sense until you realise that these people that Jesus is having these conversations with, all they want to do is kill him. They, they are going to kill him. They publicly question his authority and his popularity with the people. They question his integrity and character. They question his understanding and the application of the law of Moses. And for his part, Jesus describes the religious leaders as the wicked tenants of a vineyard who kept all of the produce for themselves. And he tells them that they will be punished most severely for oppressing the poor whilst luxuriating in their stolen wealth. Read it. Read the parable of the tenants. You'll, get, you'll understand what Jesus is saying. He tells them that they don't know the scriptures. These are the religious leaders. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And he prophesies that this enormous temple, which is in the middle of Jerusalem, which is the center point of religious power and authority in the whole of, uh, of, of Israel, and it has been throughout their history, it has such profound symbolic power. He says that he will destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And they take him literally. What? It would be like someone walking into London and saying, I am going to destroy the Houses of Parliament. And I'm going to destroy it and I'm going to rebuild it in three days' time. I mean, you're just going to think I'm crazy. But first of all, if, I, if, you're, if, you're, if you're afraid of Jesus, if you're one of these religious elite, you're actually worried that he is going to blow up Parliament. Right? What are you going to do with that? Well, we can see what they do with it. It's no surprise that they look for any way that they can to kill him. But they have a problem. He's wildly popular with the people. Not just the poor and the marginalised, of whom there are literally loads of them, like the massive majority of the population, but also with the middle classes. Even the middle classes are becoming in intrigued by this Jesus. So he's got public opinion on his side. What do they do? Well, they arrest him. They arrest him anyway. And they bring him to a religious court. This is not a sort of court that you and I would recognise it's difficult to describe. I don't really like drawing too many parallels, but I suppose there is an element of uh, religious Sharia law, perhaps, that some of the more extremist Muslims might impose that we've heard about in places like um, Afghanistan, where people are publicly flogged or their hands are cut off or for, for seemingly innocuous crimes, but within a context of a religious law, actually very profound crimes. Well, that's what's happening here. And it says this in Mark 14, 55 to 59. And I think I want, I want you just to have that in mind. Think about, think about those, those kind of courts in, in places like Afghanistan where, where religious law rules. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him. But their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. This is what they said. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah? the son of the blessed one. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
At this, the high priest tore his clothes. We, why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Friends, they got him. They got him on heresy. And they condemned him to death. They were looking for any way they could to kill him. This was a man that needed putting down, and putting down really quickly. They couldn't pin anything on him. They knew he was a major threat to their regime. They knew that he could turn the people against them, but they couldn't pin anything on him. So they condemned him on the spurious charge of blasphemy. Thanks to Mark, we know why Jesus was killed. He was killed because he was an enemy of the state. He was seen as a revolutionary who exposed the corruption and injustice at the heart of the Jewish and the Roman authorities. He stood up for the marginalised, the oppressed, the sick, the poor. Those were the people who welcomed Jesus and whom Jesus served with countless acts of love and compassion. For our contemplation today, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper with each other, which, if you're not familiar with it, is basically... We've got some bread, there's gluten-free bread if you like, and there's some juice here. I think it's just grape juice, isn't it, Claire? Yeah. And the, this, uh, these two things represent the body and blood of Christ, which is deeply symbolic, not just for Jesus' death, but also of the Passover, which was the Jewish festival they were all celebrating at this time. So what we're going to do is we're going to take, invite you in a moment to come and take some bread, which is a symbol of Jesus' body, and some of the juice, which is a symbol of Jesus' blood. And we're going to remember Jesus' death. And for our contemplation time, as you do that, I want to invite you to contemplate and ask yourself, which Jewish gate, sorry, which gate in Jerusalem would you have been drawn to prior to the Passover? Which gate? Would it be the East Gate, where basically all of the people that you shouldn't really mix with if you are um, you know, trying to be a pure and holy Jew, like the people who have diseased, the people who are uh, disabled, the people who have got um, mental and physical health problems, the people who are unemployed, the people who, whose bodies are, are near to death, uh, people who are ceremonially unclean, the people who are the poorest in society. Would you be at that gate waving palm leaves? Or would you needed to show your face at the West Gate to maintain your, your status in society? Would you have been there welcoming the Roman governor because you, you see the, the order and the stability and the Roman peace that, uh, that the Roman system brought to that society, albeit through fear? and control. Which gate would you have been at? And for a moment, I just want to invite you to allow Christ Jesus within you just to power your imagination. So you might just want to close your eyes for a moment. Christ Jesus, as we sit here, would you fire our imagination and help us 
just learn something more about ourselves. Not in any sense of shame or condemnation, just in a sense of where we're at. Would we have stood at the East Gate welcoming you? Or would we have stood at the West Gate welcoming the Roman Empire? Would we be motivated by fear? Or would we be motivated by love? I think for many of us, probably including me as well, we may be, if we had lived at that time, we may have been more motivated by fear than love. Now as we, as we prepare now just to take the little supper and to eat the bread and drink the juice together in memory of Jesus' death, in memory of his death on the cross, his blood shed, his body broken. I want to encourage you just to, as you do that, as a physical sign of doing that, bring your fears to Christ. Or at least admit your fears to Christ. Christ in you. Bring your fears and lay them at the foot of the cross. For perfect love casts out all fear. And so, Jesus, would you increase our understanding and experience of your love for us in such a way that we might be able to lay down our fears at the foot of the cross? And friends, as we do that, Sometimes the, the, the half-life of a decision to do that is lengthened by telling someone else. Because if you just keep it within yourself, the effect of that on your life is shortened. Because it, you, can, you can forget it. You can, you can you kind of fritter it away and allow fears to re-encroach on you. But if you have some specific fears that you're thinking of right now, bring them to the cross. And then this week, or today, just tell them to someone you trust. Say, these are the fears that I put at the foot of the cross today. These are the fears that I laid down. And, and don't do this. Like, there is no hyper-individualism in the gospel. There's only hyper-connectedness. The gospel should connect us, not make us feel isolated. So I just want to encourage you to tell someone what fears you've laid at the foot of the cross as you come and take some bread and juice now. So I just invite you to do that in your own time. We'll put some quiet music on. And then once you've done that, if you've got kids upstairs and you'd like to go and sign them out, that'll be welcomed. Um, equally, if you'd like some prayer or you want to come to the front here 
and have someone pray with you or you just want to share your fears that you've laid at the foot of the cross this morning with someone here, we'd love to do that with you. If you're at home, and then I would encourage you to do exactly the same, apart from come to the front. All right, take some, take some time to uh, avail yourself of some juice and bread.